If you haven't already, will you turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation uh, 18. Revelation 18, and if you need a copy of God's Word, you get the attention of the ushers who, God bless you guys, you've scurried around from the offering to this. So bless you in, in making these uh, copies of the Bible available to us. Revelation 18. We've been studying the book of Revelation, of course, for some time now. And we left off a few weeks ago in the middle of a mini-series. A mini-series about the rise and fall of Babylon. What the Apostle John, through his visions of the end times, calls Babylon uh, the great city, Babylon the great, or the great prostitute. One and the same as we found. The culture... It's what Babylon refers to. It's a culture toward the end of the Great Tribulation especially, but rising even now. It's a culture of sexual debauchery, self-centered luxury, and the persecution of believers. Babylon. Babylon. And we've covered a lot in the course of this little mini-series, this being the fourth part of it. But we're not quite finished there are three more truths and three more warnings to go with these truths that we can't afford to miss. Three more truths and three more applications that apply and will apply in the great tribulation and certainly apply even now as Babylon rises even in our day. And so you follow along with me. Starting in Revelation chapter 18, verse 8, we're going to work our way through this entire chapter and even in through the first five verses of chapter 19. Yes, there is a God. All right? But that means you're going to want to keep your finger on the text because I'm going to be jumping around a little bit so that we can take it all in and encapsulate it and let the Lord impress it on our hearts and souls the best that we possibly can. Revelation 18, starting in verse 8. For this reason, the voice in heaven says, the reason that Babylon is arrogant regarding her security, that she's basically untouchable in nature, just, she just got through expressing that. For this reason, this voice from heaven says, her plagues, Babylon's plagues, will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. In other words, he's plenty powerful to do it. Verse 9, and the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, Alas, it's an expression of deep sadness and lament. And we're going to see it over and over again. In fact, we're going to see many things repeated throughout this chapter for good reason. Alas, alas, these kings of the earth say, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Let's stop there. Her plagues, verse 8, will come in a single day. And her judgment in a single hour. Two expressions to say that Babylon's destruction will be sudden and swift. Its destruction will be sudden and it will be swift. 
thank God. Thank God. We can do so ahead of time knowing how it's characterized and what it's going to be like. And I guarantee that if we are still alive when the great tribulation ensues and we're still alive to the end of it, we will certainly thank God for its sudden and swift destruction. Sudden for the world, but not so much for us because we know that it's coming. I mean, after all the sin, debauchery, and persecution, we're going to be more than ready for the destruction of this worldwide culture. And God won't have it anymore. He'll come to the end of it. Like with his purposes accomplished, his patience will run out. Is he long-suffering? Absolutely. More than we could even comprehend even now in our lives and long-suffering and patient with us but with the whole world through the great tribulation, can you imagine with all of the sexual immorality that will go on, the persecution and killing of his people, the church? Long-suffering for sure. But there will come a day when he's done, when he's had it. His purpose is accomplished. His patience will run out just like that. Just like that. It's going to happen suddenly as if... A, out of the blue and swiftly suddenly and swiftly I mean what seems permanent will fall in a moment if you were to ask the vast majority of the people on this planet whether they're none of them will have virtually none of them will have thought about this if you ask them or were able somehow do you think that this world's going to keep on going do you think that the city in which you live is just going to perpetuate itself and, and exist long after you are dead and in the grave? And most of them would say, yeah, yeah, I think it's going to be if you were to press them. We think that everything that's going on in our life is just going to keep on going on. We think that tomorrow is going to be just like today. We think that next week is going to be just like last week. We do, don't we? We live that way. We, live, we have a default in our mind, especially in such a safe and secure country in which we live and the time in which we live. But it's not always going to be the case. And when the destruction comes, it's going to be swift. What seems everlasting will end quickly. Not only do verses 8 and 9 say it, but verses 16 and 17. Skip down there. Verse 16 here it is again, alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. Alas, for in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. Just like we found in verse 9, single hour. It's all been laid waste. Looking at this, in John's vision, it's looking at it from the past tense. It's happened it's going to be swift. Now, does that literally mean an hour, a single hour? Is it going to be literally that swift or, or one day, literally speaking? It could. It could. But I tend to think that it's an expression to mean suddenly and swiftly. However long it takes, it's not going to be drawn out. Suddenly and swiftly. And certainly far more rapid than we could ever Imagine with such a 
infrastructure that we have, such a world that we have, such an intertwined internet and all of the rest, it's certainly going to fall way quicker than we could ever imagine. It's going to be sudden and swift. And notice the various means by which it will be destroyed. Its destruction will be sudden and swift by various means. Just a couple of identifiers here for you. By various means. Look at the middle of verse 8 again. Her plagues will come in a single day. Here it is. Death and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire. There's four means right there by which Babylon will be destroyed. Death, mourning, famine, and fire. It's not just the destruction, notice, of cities and places and things, but it's the destruction of people as well. People. From plagues of death and plagues of famine to the one sandwiched in between there, the mean sandwich in between those two means, the plagues of mourning, plagues of grief. In other words, there's going to be death that comes about by loss and loneliness. People are going to grieve to death. You say, how in the world does that work? Well, look around. In fact, the Surgeon General just issued a statement this week saying that half, it's almost hard to believe, half of all Americans suffer such loneliness and isolation that the ill effects to their health is the same as smoking 12 cigarettes a day. Half the people are so lonely and isolated in our country, just our country, that the physical ill effects are the same as smoking 12 cigarettes a day. Babylon's here. People are already dying by mourning. Loneliness, isolation, and whatever else would cause it. It's here and it's on the rise. But someday it's going to fall. Someday Babylon is going to fall by death, famine, mourning, fire, and one more, violence. Look at verse 21. This is another means by which it's going to fall swiftly and suddenly. Violence. Verse 21, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone. A millstone was one of those large circular stones that was used to grind against another smaller stone as the livestock would rotate it and they'd pour the grain in on it and they would grind it down to take up one of these large millstones. You could look it up on the internet. In his vision of the end times that God gives him, John describes exactly what he sees. Mighty angel take up a large millstone, great millstone, and he threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with, here it is, violence, violence, and will be found no more. It's not going to be a gentle fall. It's not going to be a a slow fade into the pages of history like so many other nation states in the course of time. No, 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 it's going to crash. When the time comes, when God's had it, when his purposes are accomplished, toward the end of the great tribulation, Babylon is going to fall suddenly, swiftly, and by various means. Never to be restored. 
That's another thank God. Never to be restored. The end times culture of debauchery and persecution will never recover. Look at verse 14. The merchants of the earth, that is the businessmen, the businesswomen, will say of Babylon, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you. Here it is. Never to be found again. Never to be found again. Never to be restored. In other words, the sinful things that people will love and do at that point will be lost forever. Just done. Gone for good. In a moment. And verses 22 and 23 say the same. Check it out. Babylon will be, end of verse 21, Babylon will be found no more. Never to be restored, no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. No more creativity. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. No more productivity. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. No more activity. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. No more joy. No more affinity. No more family. No more people honoring the institution of marriage. For your merchants were great, were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. When the time comes, Babylon will fall, never to be restored. Game over. No more. Just like Jeremiah prophesied about ancient Babylon, we talked about this a few weeks back, that this is a, a type in Scripture. It's biblical typology. Here, the Apostle John, in recounting the visions, is harking back or referring back to something that happened earlier in redemptive history. And it was laid out earlier in redemptive history to be a foreshadowing of what is going to happen in the future. You remember that? Shake your head and make me feel good for a second. And here it is again. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied the very same thing about ancient Babylon. You can find it in Isaiah 24, Jeremiah 25, Micah 5. And he even, Jeremiah, for his part, he even literally threw a stone into the Euphrates River to illustrate it. We find in this vision it's going to be an angel, a great millstone into the ocean to describe the violence and, and the, the no-moreness, if you will, of Babylon and the culture. But in ancient Babylon, Jeremiah took up a stone in front of the people. He threw it into the Euphrates River, and it happened. It happened. Babylon was destroyed. It fell never to rise. It happened before, it's going to happen again. Only this time on a worldwide scale. So when it happens in the Great Tribulation, don't be alarmed. Its destruction, yes, will be sudden and swift, but don't be alarmed. Hold fast and stay the course when Babylon falls. 
The coming of Jesus is right around the corner. How right around the corner? I don't know. But as these things are laid out here in the latter parts of the great tribulation here in the end of 18 and in chapter 19, it's going to be close. And so we should hold fast and not be alarmed, which I think is going to be easier said than done. I would imagine you think so too. Because the world is going to fall apart right before our eyes. I mean, up to that point, it will have been falling apart. All kinds of natural disasters, all kinds of persecution. We've talked about it all. But here it's going to be infrastructure. It's going to be cities. Things are going to burn. People are going to die in mass. The whole kit and caboodle is going to go down the tubes right before our eyes. And most people will absolutely shudder. Most people will absolutely tremble. Like it says in verse 10 again. Verse 10. They will stand far off in fear of her torment. In fear for the culture. In fear for themselves. Even though they're afar off, they're going to shudder. Trembling at Babylon's fall, alarmed at her judgment. Do you remember the fear that swept the nation on 9-11? Remember that? The alarm? Like the panic? You could feel it, couldn't you? Even though most of us stood afar off, afar off from the destruction and the falling buildings and the airplanes and all of it. We were in fear of the torment even though we were afar off. Now, multiply that by, oh, a thousand with the whole world collapsing. People are going to freak out. They're going to tremble in their shoes. They're going to become virtual puddles. But you, beloved, can I commend this to you straight from Jude? You, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is his imminent return at that point. Waiting for the mercy of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Build yourselves up in faith and prayer and the love of God starting right now so that then you're not alarmed. Build yourself up and don't be alarmed. You know it's coming. And you know it's all part of God's plan. Don't be alarmed. Hold fast. Stay the course. Fervent in prayer. Firm in your knowledge of God's word. That's the first truth that we see in these verses and the accompanying application for our lives. The second is that many will mourn its loss. They'll not only fear... Many will fear, but many will mourn. That is, they'll weep, they'll grieve, they'll wail. Why? Because of the lack of debauchery. 
It's not just going to be a fear of, boy, I hope that doesn't happen to me as it's happening so suddenly and swiftly. But it's going to be a mourning because the debauchery in which the vast majority of the world indulge day in and day out, moment in and moment out, is going to be gone. It's no longer going to be available to them. They're going to mourn its loss. They're going to mourn the loss of, of, of luxury, uh, access to pleasure, the creature comforts that they were so accustomed to. Look at verse 9 again. The kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, here it is, will weep and wail over her. This isn't just this kind of quiet light type crying that you hold in and Take a deep breath and swallow hard and then you, you recover. No, no, this is weeping and wailing when they see the smoke of her burning. They'll mourn her loss. Her loss because it's their loss. The loss, really, of sinful pleasure. Many will mourn the loss of Babylon, specifically referring to the loss of sinful pleasure. The loss of luxurious living. I mean, the world over is going to be like one great big addict suffering withdrawal. It's true. Yearning for the sexual immorality in which they once indulged. Longing for their insulated lives of comfort. That are going to go away in a fleeting moment. Same in verses 11 to 13. If you remember the very first sermon of this series, well, a year and a half ago now, I wouldn't fault you if you didn't remember. I quoted these verses. Verse 11, And the merchants of the earth, here it is again, weep and mourn for her. And now this tells us why. It gives us more reasons. Since no one buys their cargo anymore. There it is. No one buys their goods and services anymore. No one does business with them anymore. Nobody's around to do business with them anymore. The infrastructure isn't there to do business anymore. All the merchants weep and may wail since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood. Not sure exactly what that means. Is it like the candle we have in our house? All kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. I'd say that pretty much covers it all. They'll mourn the loss of sinful pleasure and the loss of business. The loss of business, legitimate and illegitimate. They'll mourn the loss of all of it. Necessities and luxuries. Things and people, God help us. Human souls. Giving us one more insight into the inherent evil of the culture. Where human trafficking is no different than cargo trade. It's just a, another item in a long list of items for which people long. Seriously, God help us. 
even now because Babylon's on the rise with the human trafficking. You'd think in our day and age that we are so enlightened, we have such control, we have such law and order that human trafficking would no longer be a thing. The Bible tells us it's going to get worse. It's just another item in a long list of things for which people long. Like we saw in verse 14, we'll get it there again, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, including sex trafficking, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. Like some of the splendors in entertainment these days. Think Las Vegas, over the top. It's going to be gone. And people are going to mourn the loss. Not to mention the loss of the ripple effect of the business that comes along with all of that sort of stuff. Over the top opulence. Or the extravagant delicacies of, of restaurants. Think Paris. When Becky and I had the opportunity to be there now six years ago, we were driving on this tour bus and we were going by, it looked like just kind of downtown Paris, this nondescript building as far as I was concerned. And the tour guide was like, do you, do you see that door right there? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, well, that's like a, a Michelin, a, in fact, a two-star Michelin thing. That's like throwing pearls to swine to me. I'll take a hamburger at Culver's any day, all right? All right. He says, that's like a really ritzy restaurant. And we're like, well, what do you mean by ritzy? I mean, $800 to $1,000 a plate. Delicacies. All your delicacies and all your splendors are lost to you. People the world over are going to mourn the loss of business to supply their pleasures. And then there's the loss of wealth along with it. These all go hand in hand. The loss of wealth. Many will mourn the loss of sinful pleasure, the loss of business, and the loss of wealth. Verse 15. The merchants of these wares were just listed out and longed for in the culture. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her, wealth, will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. There it is again. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. I don't know how many trillions of dollars the stock market represents these days and the bond market back in... I was involved in all that. The bond market was larger than the stock market and represented several trillion dollars worth of value at any one time. The foreign currency market, the same way, multiple trillions of dollars. We can't even imagine these things. In a single hour, the wealth will be laid waste. You want to talk weeping and gnashing of teeth. The depression of the late 1920s and crash of 1929 and 30s, people were jumping out of windows in New York City. Can you imagine? Second part of verse 17, and all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? 
And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, I told you it was repeated over and over again. Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. I think the ships at sea simply represent the means of doing business all over the world. Can you say the World Wide Web? Alas, alas, for all those who grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Many will mourn the loss of wealth in the end times culture of Babylon. It's going to be devastating. The loss of profit from doing business with the culture. Getting rich off of it. Many will mourn its loss. Don't be one of them. Don't be one of them. Listen, listen, don't, don't mourn the loss of anything associated with the culture of Babylon. Then or now. Then or now. Make sure you're not holding so tightly to all that God has given you and blessed you in terms of wealth or goods or anything else that way. Make sure you're not holding so tightly so that you're one of those who mourn its loss. Don't mourn the loss of anything, whether it's sinful pleasures or worldly wealth, because it's all going to be corrupt and the loss is all going to be deserved. All deserved. This is, this is why we shouldn't mourn its loss. There are losses in this world that we should absolutely mourn because it's not deserved. The loss of a premature loss of a loved one. Oh, we grieve. Not as those without hope, but we grieve, and we should. But when it comes to the loss of things that are evil and wicked and corrupt, we shouldn't mourn. One reason, second part of verse 23. After telling Babylon that even some good things will, will cease, the angel says, For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and they're not doing business anymore to perpetuate the culture, here it is. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. Your sorcery. In the great tribulation, the whole world will be corrupted by the powers of darkness, deserving a downfall. They will willingly and voluntarily be corrupted by the demonic powers that be haunt of demons that the culture is, as we found in the first part of the chapter. They'll deserve a downfall. What's to mourn? What's to mourn? That's the first reason. Its downfall is deserved because it's corrupt, it's wicked, demonically so. The second is found in verse 24. And in her, such a sobering verse, in her, in the culture of Babylon, was found the blood of prophets and of saints, prophets of old, prophet, saints of new, found the blood of them and, and of all, the blood of all who have been slain on earth. She'll be guilty of worldwide persecution and murder. The culture of Babylon. Making her fall well-deserved. Well-deserved. So whatever you do, don't be one of those who mourns it. Don't be 
that person. In fact, rejoice. True. That's what verse 20 says. Check it out. After saying Babylon has been laid waste, it says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Rejoice, it says. God has repaid her for her sins against you. Rejoice. It's the, it's the thing that the psalmist of old yearned for and wrote about and gives words to our heart when we have none. When we are persecuted. Oh God, how long? We saw it back in chapter 6 that the martyrs underneath the altar in heaven as John sees it in the vision. How long, oh Lord? How long are you going to wait to, to vindicate us? To, to bring vengeance for what has been done to us? A refrain repeated over and over again throughout the scriptures. And when it happens, God tells us to rejoice. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. There will come a day when he will make things right. Just as he promised, I will repay since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Rejoice, rejoice when the time comes. I wouldn't preach this if it wasn't square and straight up in the Bible, but it is, it is, it's okay. Sometimes we like maybe feel bad about that. We shouldn't, we shouldn't. And I think when we are the direct recipients of all the martyrdom and the persecution and the difficulty and the struggle in those end days of the last days, I don't think we're going to need to be convinced to rejoice when God brings it to a halt. Rejoice because heaven certainly does. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. After this I heard, John says, what seemed... This ought to be familiar. I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. When Babylon falls near the end of the great tribulation, heaven will rejoice. You can bet on that. Heaven will rejoice. Heaven will party. Heaven will celebrate it. Insert your verb. Verse 1 again, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. The multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation that we saw back in chapter 7. Along with the myriads and myriads of angels, all of them crying out, hallelujah. Meaning, praise the Lord or praise ye Yahweh. That's what hallelujah means. Praise the Lord or we just got through singing it several times in our worship. It means praise the Lord or praise ye Yahweh. And the interesting thing about this is that it's the only place in the New Testament that this word is found. Only place right here in these five verses, chapter 19, Revelation, in the entire New Testament. And that's primarily the case because it's not a Greek word. The original language of the New Testament. 
Hallelujah is not a Greek word. It's a transliteration of three Hebrew words from the Old Testament. Not a translation, not a translation, hallelujah, but a transliteration. Transliteration, meaning a new word was coined in Greek and then in English for us that not only retains the same meaning as the Hebrew words, but the same sounds as the Hebrew words. If it were translated, it would say, or it would read, praise ye Yahweh. From the Hebrew words, hallelujah. Yah, short for Yahweh, the proper name of God. So, so if, if it were translated, if John translated it here into the Greek and then into the English for us, it would say, praise ye Yahweh, or praise the Lord. But instead of translating it, John transliterated it to read, hallelujah, combining the three Hebrew words into one new word, if you will. And as such, you well know, it's not only become a common expression for us, but for heaven, for heaven. I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah. No less than four times in these verses. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. But the point is that it's used to express great delight in God's judgment and destruction of Babylon. That's the point. It's used to express great delight, great joy. Hallelujah, second part of verse 1. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. That's another expression of praise for God's sovereignty. For or because they cry hallelujah. They say praise you God. For because his judgments are true and just. That is they're right and they're fair. For another reason. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her, avenged on her, the blood of his servants. The reason heaven will rejoice is the fall of Babylon. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And not just once, but over and over. Verse 3. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. In other words, praise God for his eternal destruction of such wickedness. Verse 4, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down. The 24 elders being our representatives around the throne, the closest there, and the four living creatures, God's closest angels. They too fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Yet another transliteration from the Hebrew. Amen, Amen. Meaning, same, same as the Hebrew word. Did you know that you spoke Hebrew all the time in your prayers? We're all scholars. And it means yes, agreed. Amen, yes, agreed. It's a confident certainty. It's like when you say it in the middle of my sermon, or you think it, or in the middle of someone's prayer. Amen. Amen. It's okay every now and then. It's an expression of confident agreement about what is just said. In this case, confident agreement of praise for God's judgment of Babylon. Everybody else in heaven was saying hallelujah for the downfall. They joined in as well. Say amen. Hallelujah. 
And when the time comes, we should too. That's the point here. We too should praise God. We too should rejoice, rejoice over his judgment. Look at verse 5. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God. There it is. Praise our God. That time it's translated. Praise our God, all you his servants. You who fear him, small and great. You too raise a hallelujah, God says. All of you on earth as well as heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. Don't miss out. That's the point. Oh, don't miss out. Don't withhold the praise and don't miss out on the joy. Did you catch that? Don't, miss, don't withhold the praise and don't miss out on the joy. After all, that's the point at which your perseverance will be rewarded. When, when Babylon falls, that is the point that your perseverance will be rewarded and there's even better coming around the corner. It's the point at which your belief will be vindicated. Your faith will be upheld. Your suffering will be relieved. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise the Lord. And not just then. Don't just miss out then, but now. Right now. I mean, it's not just the return of the Lord that's cause for great rejoicing. It's not just, you know, the praise of God in heaven that's cause for great rejoicing. It's the judgment of God on earth. Right here. And the promise of God. The promise of God. To make it all right. So don't miss out. Then or now. Hold fast. And rejoice. Father, you're so good to us. You're so good to us from your steadfast love to your precious promises. Keep us, God, I pray. Oh, keep us from all alarm. Keep us from mourning the things of this world. Keep us from holding too tightly to the things that you've entrusted to us. And God, fill our hearts with joy unspeakable. whether here on earth or with the multitude in heaven, whether now or later, fill our hearts with joy unspeakable. Now for the promise that you will bring it all to a close. You will bring it all to an end. You will make all things right. Fill us, we pray. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand, let's worship.